0: Precious Father, we come to you to um, bear our hearts before you to confess our great need, uh, moment by moment, for your enabling grace that we might worship you well. We know that in and of our own strength, we have no capacity uh, to walk worthy, and so we come, acknowledging your worth, your majesty, the extent of your grace, the fullness of our salvation, and the reality this side of glory, of our struggle with sin. And so we come to bear our hearts for you to hear our repentance, our great need for you to grant us um, greater capacity to obey you and to know you more fully and to hear the hurt in our hearts, the hatred in our hearts for sin that we struggle with so mightily. All that we might... um, Know you more fully. Hear our hearts. Direct your people. Strengthen us. Grant us enabling grace. That we might be light. A reflection of your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning, welcome to continue in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. And we've kind of settled into a little mini-series, if you will. Um, again, following... Uh, uh, Men of God before us, um, kind of standing on their shoulders, and they've settled down on this language. Uh, it's nothing new. So we want to uh, taking our cue from them. We've spent a little time here in verse 21. We've dealt with repentance. We've dealt with faith, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we've dealt with the nature of faith, nature of saving faith, the object of saving faith, that being Jesus Christ alone. And now I want to kind of wrap things up here um, as we plan to move forward in the coming future with the assurance of faith. So we're kind of settling down to a little more of a didactic approach with this little uh, portion of Scripture here and working through this little series. And so this morning, we're going to kind of tidy that up, wrap that up with the assurance of faith. So the the title of this morning's message is Assurance of Faith. will let's just pick up the language again. In Acts chapter 20, and I'll back up to verse 20, and we'll read from 20 through 21. And the context there is Paul, is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. And again, it's the last time that he will see them, the last time that we're going to uh, be together face-to-face to face on this earth. And so he conveys this reality. Again, this is not an arrogance. This is indeed. This is the facts of his ministry to them by way of encouragement, as they'll go forth and do likewise. Among the brethren there at Ephesus. The Paul speaking says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly, and from house to house. And here's the language, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, building upon that language, that monumental language there, this is again all we've tracked all of Paul's ministry up to this point. And we're coming to the end. Again, Paul has his eyes on Rome. He's going back to Jerusalem. And then from there, he has his eyes on Rome. And ultimately from Rome, Spain. We know he doesn't quite make it to Spain. So we're coming to the end of Paul's ministry. We've seen him track back and forth across the Aegean Sea, all over the known world at that time, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, being uh, beaten from pillar to post, and clearly planning churches and clearly building them upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says all men, Jews and Greeks, all mankind must do concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. All men everywhere must repent towards God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There is no other means of salvation. So that's the background. That's that's what we're building off of. And now we've talked about that language a bit in depth here. And I want to deal with assurance. Because assurance of salvation is something that we don't always 100% line up with emotional. But yet assurance of salvation is central and key and beautiful and meaningful. For us, and more importantly, for God, as he relates to us as the one who grants salvation through Jesus Christ alone. So, as we look at assurance here, thinking about this language, and we look at assurance, I want you to first uh, build on this precept. Assurance of faith uh, leading to salvation, that means saving faith. That's what we're talking about here, saving faith. It's an important aspect of our salvation. The salvation that God is working out in mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. So assurance of saving faith brings glory to God. I want you to understand that. God's pleased for us to have assurance. It brings him glory. And certainly it brings a settled peace to the saved sinner. So what does God not desire concerning? Assurance. Well, he doesn't desire that ignorance and fear would hover over your hope of eternal glory. That's not the desire of God for you concerning assurance of your faith. Now, we're not talking about an arrogant, self-righteous walk. We're talking about a humbled assurance of who we are in Christ, to the glory of God alone. But assurance is good. It's meaningful. It has a purpose. We need to spend a little time addressing it. Now, uh, historically, theologically, there's been two aspects that's been banded about over assurance. And so there's, there's two aspects, and I'm going to define them. This comes from Louis Burkhoff, but there's two to think about. Really, they, they come from the essence of faith. I certainly believe and hold that, but they're, they're, they're spliced a bit. So we have an objective part of assurance and a subjective part of assurance. And so I'm going to just uh, define those, and, and they, they blend together. And the reality of an assurance of faith. But let me just define them a little bit up front, and we'll hold on to them and take them holistically as we look forward at about the reality of assurance and what saving faith really is. What does it look like? So two aspects: first, objective assurance. That's a certain conviction that Christ is all he professes to be and will do all he promises. That's an aspect of objective aspect of assurance. Then subjective assurance is an assured conviction that one has had his or her sins pardoned and and his or her soul saved. Now, those are both true of assurance. Both of those do not always line up in a genuine believer, emotionally speaking, experientially speaking, all the time. But both are true, and both are realities of assurance of saving faith. Now, they both stem. Here's where we we understand and hold them both to be true. Again, emotionally, we're not always lining up there. Experientially, we're not always lining up there. But here's where we're grounded. Here's where they come from. They stem from faith in God's promises. They stem from the testimony of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the believer. And now also they're predicated and built upon our response to that reality, our response to God's testimony of his salvation in us. Our active response of faith also plays a role. In our active response, there is the exercise of good conscience. And the men we had, uh, the elders and the deacons met yesterday, and we talked a great deal about Responsibility of of keeping a Christian conscience. And that's extremely important in our holding sweetly and truly our assurance of faith. I want you to realize that sometimes that passes us by. Your keeping a clean conscience builds a great deal of assurance for you on your salvation, concerning your salvation. And then there's the doing of good works. That might be a little more obvious to it, but they're both in play. Are exercising a clean conscience and our, the outworking of good works that flows from the reality of being saved. The good works that give evidence to the salvation, right? Not the good works that are hoping to achieve salvation, but the salvation that is real and naturally overflows the power of the indwelling spirit into good works to the glory of God. Okay? The testimony of God's promises, testimony of the indwelling Holy Spirit, then the testimonies of our response of obedience. The active keeping of a good conscience and the active doing good works, okay? All of those are rolling in together to hold an objective and subjective reality of our assurance. Now, I hope that wasn't too technical. That was a little technical there. But they're all building together to this reality of our assurance of faith. Now, we hold that and we talk about this and sometimes a little bit of the technical part, the objective, the subjective reality for this reason, There is a kind of faith that does not save, right? There is a kind of faith that does not save. James 2.19, listen to this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Here we go. The demons also believe and shudder. So demons hold an element of faith that does not save. They believe and they shudder over it. But they are lost as lost can be. There's no possibility of genuine saving faith than a demon. Yet they believe and shudder. Now, saving faith is the conviction of the truth of the gospel. That's saving faith. The conviction of the truth of the gospel. There is no saving faith without the conviction of the truth of the gospel. Now, some, yet that being so, some believe the gospel and are not saved. Case in point, we've been working our way through Acts. We go back to Acts 8. Remember Simon the Sorcerer? Remember when uh, um, Simon the Sorcerer re- believed? Acts 8, verse 13, it says this. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. It says he believed. Now, Philip came there and he carried the gospel into the Samaritan city. And many believed. And Simon the sorcerer says here, he even believed. And so they called in the apostles of Christ, right? Peter leading the way. They called them in. Why? Do you remember? To lay hands on these believers. And what was going to happen when they laid hands on the believers there in Samaria? The Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. That was a time, and again, a unique situation in space and time. But now to validate that these Samaritans, to validate to these, uh, the, the primarily Jewish church at that point, to validate to them that, yes, the same Holy Spirit had now fallen upon those half-breed, horrible Samaritans, which you know, the Jews wouldn't even believe that God could ever save them, but he did. And now the apostles of Christ had called him to lay hands on them and see the Holy Spirit fall on them so there would be this understanding, this unity of what has transpired, that God has now moving the salvation in Jesus Christ beyond Jerusalem. And we know what that's predicated on in there in Acts chapter 1 that builds the whole book for us, right, as the gospel moves out to the nations. So that's what's going on here. Now listen, when Peter gets there, and the apostles of Christ are laying hands on these people, and the power of God is now falling on in them in the, in, the, in the coming of the Holy Spirit on these believers. But listen what happens, beginning in verse 18 through 20. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was uh, bestowed through the laying on of hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well. So that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, Peter responds to him. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. May it perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, Simon the sorcerer believed he was baptized and he is lost. That's a faith, a kind of faith that does not save. You say, Well, yes, Simon Peter's a oh, unique times, a unique situation, and it says he believed, but it didn't say that he believed in Jesus specifically. So, what about that? Maybe there's just there's something lost there. Certainly, Philip came preaching Christ, but maybe there's something lost. I never seen anything about that. It's just, it could just be this kind of vague belief. Well. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Part of saving faith is commitment to the Christ of the gospel. That is true. But some believe in Christ. There's a kind of faith that believes in Christ and yet does not produce saving faith. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he, and this is Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed what? In his name. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Many believed in Jesus, observing his signs, which, they, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, they believed in him, but Jesus did not believe in them. He didn't give himself to them, So there was a belief in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in these believers. This is a faith in Jesus that does not save. So some exercise a kind of faith, yet they are not saved. And a kind of faith to some degree that's directed to the object of faith, but it's not saving faith. So this becomes the question, do you truly believe? Do you truly have saving faith? That's the question. That's the issue of assurance. So there's a false faith. There's a superficial faith. And with superficial faith, there comes superficial conviction and superficial commitment. It's not genuine, it's not a faith that possesses salvation. So, what's the difference? What's the difference? That's the question we have as the body of Christ. That's the question we must wrestle with. That's the question we must lay uh, before us and come to the Word of God and, and principally pick this up and hold this rightly. What's the difference? What's the difference in saving faith and false faith or temporary faith, a faith that lasts for a while and fades away? What's the difference? This is a vital, important question for us. It's an important question for us concerning our own salvation, concerning what we're dealing with here, that the beauty of assurance, the importance of assurance, the sweetness of assurance, the glory of God that is offered in assurance, the the peace within our soul that's gained with assurance is vital for us. But it's also very important for our gospel witness. For our testimony, as we carry the Gospel to others, and knowing and understanding what is genuine assurance, it's extremely important as we go forth in our mission mandate to carry the gospel so it's important personally and it's important in our co- in, in, in our command by Christ to go forth and carry the gospel. This is an element of the gospel that matters, and so first, when we think about kind of the background here and, and, and the issue of assurance of faith. I want you to know this. Faith is rooted in and stems from the heart, the very seat of our being, the very core of our, of our being, the very essence of our being. That's where faith will be rooted, and that's where faith will stem from, true faith, saving faith. False faith is characteristically superficial. False faith is by nature superficial. False faith is a surface faith. If we were to compare the two, saving faith is like a pure gold bar, a pure bar of gold through and through. False faith is like a lead bar coated in gold. As soon as you scratch the surface, the gold disappears and you see the lead. False faith is a surface, superficial faith through and through. Characteristically, always to the core, it's surface. It has no root. It has no stem. It's merely superficial. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Now, here's the essence of this reality. Here's the essence of saving faith, being lodged, rooted within the heart. That if you confess with your mouth, now as children, this should all start ringing your bell. This 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 is part and parcel for your memory verses right here. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So a faith that saves comes from the heart. It's not superficial. So why can one confess with the mouth that leads, a confession that leads to salvation? Why? Because that confession comes from the heart. The heart is the seat of who we are. All that comes out of the mouth resides first in the heart. That's why one can confess a salvation, a true genuine salvation, because it is lodged in the heart. It was rooted in the heart. It stems from the heart. What's in a man's heart, what? Comes out of his mouth, right? If evil is in a man's heart, what will come forth from his mouth? Evil. If true righteousness is in a man's heart, what will come forth from his mouth? What will he confess? He will confess a genuine salvation. A faith that saves comes from the heart. Now, here's the reality of a superficial faith that does not save. Matthew 13, verses 5 and 6. Now, this is the parable of the sower, right? But other seed fell on on, on rocky places where they did not have much soul. And immediately they sprang up. There's evidence, there's a profession, there's a belief, there's a kind of faith. Immediately they sprang up, but because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And here's why because they had no root and they withered away. That's a false faith. There is no root. Genuine saving faith is rooted in the heart alone. Genuine saving faith comes from the heart. The thoughts and desires of the heart is what flows out of the mouth. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So genuine salvation is like a fountain. It's exactly like a fountain. It's a fountain that's that's settled in the heart. And what flows out of that fountain is the reality and assurance of salvation. When there is a genuine saving faith rooted in the heart, it's a spring, a fountain that flows forth the reality of that salvation. And what comes out of the mouth is the assurance of salvation, the confession of salvation, the genuineness of saving faith. And it comes from the heart, from with the heart is a fountain of life overflowing into all aspects of the saved person. So that is why we are to guard our hearts with all diligence, for it is a spring, a fountain of who we are in Christ. Now, unless the gospel possesses the heart and changes the heart, there is no fountain of life. There is no saving faith. So faith of the heart is a change of the character of one's life. Where there is true, genuine, genuine faith rooted in the heart, there is a heart change. And at the heart, there's a change at the core of who we are, the very essence of who we are. The very character of who we are is changed. There is a change at the heart level. Saving faith changes the heart. It changes at our core. Everything about us is changed. We're made new. Made new through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So true faith is really heart faith. It's self authenticating. It's self attesting. There's some subjectivity there. And again, emotionally, you can wane with that at times. Do we have doubt? Do all genuine Christians have doubt? Some doubt at times? Yes, we do. That's normal. Yet, in that reality, True saving faith is always self-authenticating. It's always self-attesting. There's always a subjective reality to it that gives you assurance and pours forth assurance to others of the reality of saving faith in you. That's a testimony. So there's peace within you, there's comfort within you, there's confidence within you, there's trust, there's joy, and it's all stemming from the heart. There's a heart that resonates, a heart of adoption. The spirit of adoption resonates and resides within your heart, and these realities overflow from you. They resonate within you. Saving faith is giving your heart to God. It's nothing less from your end, from your subjective end. It's nothing less. It could be much more than just that language, but it's nothing less than giving your heart fully to God. It's not holding anything back. Genuine saving faith is just abandoned to God. It is this holy hopelessness. that just said, I'm yours. I'm yours. I can't do anything else. I'm yours, all is yours, all that I think is mine is all yours, all that I contemplate in my desires, they're all yours, all my hopes and my dreams, all my aspirations, they're all yours, I can do nothing else, that's what it is, that's what it is, it's nothing less than that is giving your heart to God to the person and work of Jesus Jesus Christ. So let me put it in the negative. Saving faith is impossible. It's impossible if you hold anything back from Christ. It's impossible. If you have the capacity in your life to hold compartments or perceived compartments in your life or conceived aspects or conceived emotions or conceived situations in your life, if you have the capacity to hold them back from Jesus Christ, your Savior, that's not saving faith. If you could segment something in your life and put it away from Christ, that's not saving faith. Just mark it down. Saving faith doesn't work that way. Now, that said, yes, forevermore, yes, true Christians struggle. We still struggle with assurance. We do. We struggle with doubt. We do. Don't isolate yourself here. You're not alone. Every Christian on the planet at some time in their Christian life has struggled with doubt. We all do. I struggle with doubt more than I should. We struggle. Know that you're not alone. But listen, striving with the struggle points to genuine faith. Part of that striving with that struggle, part of that just not not giving over to it and giving up, part of that, that persevering in the struggle, part of that acknowledging it and dealing with it is a point, a marker, a pointing to genuine faith over false faith. You with me? The fact that you're struggling instead of just walking away. Or instead of just sitting superficially in the heart stone. That's still walking away. We'll get there. If you're struggling, that's a testimony to genuine faith. And oh, how we can pray together there, can't we? Oh, how we can come together and pray for one another there. Now I want to bring you to the foundation of assurance or aspects of that. There's three of them that I'm going to address today. Um, there's more probably, but I'll try to sum it up in three for this morning. So three foundations of assurance. One, saving faith perseveres. So here's a foundational reality of saving faith. It perseveres. True faith is lasting. False faith fades. False. Faith fades away. It's temporary. John six, 6 No, excuse me. John sixty six through sixty nine. Listen to the, to the language here. As a result of this, now this is Jesus teaching about them them uh, eating of His flesh and drinking His blood. Now these are disciples, and we're going to see that some were false after they hear this. So Jesus says to them, in in a very figurative language here. Concerning his flesh and his blood. Now that gets your attention. But in a very figurative language, he said, you must assimilate me, all that I am, as the unique God-man. All that I will do on the cross to bear the sin debt of my people. To take my righteousness earned under the moral law of God. To take my righteousness of the unique God-man and put it into their account and bear their sin debt in my body. That there God the Father will pour out his white, hot, righteous uh, indignation on me as a sin bearer on behalf of my people. All that I will do in my personal work, in my earthly ministry, before I go to the cross, before I rise from the dead and ascend to glory. All of who I am, all that I accomplish upon the cross, I am telling you about in this, in this, this very vivid language. You must assimilate me. You must believe, you must repent and believe on me. Now, that's the background, that's the language. And then when he gets there, as a result of this, his disciples, now these are disciples, they follow them all around the place. They withdrew. And they're not walking with him anymore. So Jesus says to the 12, he says to his inner circle, you do not want to go away also, do you? And listen to Peter. Now, listen to Peter. You struggle you have doubts listen to Peter did Peter deny his Christ did he he did oh, you know, it could happen to anybody once right three times Peter denied his Lord now listen to Peter though listen to Peter <clears throat> he nails this voice this, this is the walk off Homer okay this is the field of dreams walk off Homer right here Peter gets it. He answers Jesus Christ. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Translation, we have nowhere else to go. You alone are safe. Where else can we do? Where else can we go? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So there's the reality. There's this complete abandonment to Christ. And then Christ's reminder here, as we persevere in the faith. If you continue, if you continue in my word, there's the marker. You are my disciples. So a true, genuine, saving faith will persevere. It will persevere with Christ. It is abandoned to Christ. And then there's this beauty of we're persevering in the word. The word being God's instruction for us as we, as we continue on as followers of Christ. Now, true faith continues. Are there some hiccups along the way? Of course there are. But it continues. In contrast, false faith fades away. Now, it does not always fully fade away. People can sit in the pews continually. Good night. We live this. Most of us grew up close around this area, which is saturated with Christianity, which is a glorious thing from God. But we also know the reality of false faith. We know people sit in pews year after year after year, and they sit there as false believers. Nothing about their life follows Jesus Christ. It's quite the contrary. Yet they come and sit in a pew. We know this. And you can do that. You can sit in a pew, but your heart leaves. That's still a false faith. Just showing up that superficial It's not a walking away, always a walking away and abandoning the church. We've seen quite the contrary. It's a sitting on the church. Sometimes it's carrying the office of deacon and running a church with an iron fist. As a lost person. And you squabble over seats and color of carpet and the grounds keeping and uh, financing, and whatever else. But there is no following of Christ. There is no concern for the lost. There is no concern for loving God. There is no concern for, for honoring Jesus Christ. It's not there. The heart's gone. So that is a false faith that sits in the church, and that's a reality. It's lip service. It's a lip service faith. It's false. Matthew thirteen seven. This is the reality. Of what we have experienced so often in our culture. It's the parable of the sower. And it's the third reality. Of where the seed falls. Matthew thirteen seven. Other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. The thorns sit in the church. But their heart has been choked out long ago. It's a false faith. And there's a lack of perseverance. And that lack of perseverance is a sign of a false faith. But continuing, listen, continuing in some kind of faith is not a sign of true faith. Lack of perseverance. Walking away is certainly a sign of false faith. But just continuing superficially in some kind of faith is not always a marker of true faith. Do you see that? We must know that. We're, our culture is, we've been, we've been raised on such truths and realities. We must know this and beg God to give us wisdom, to clarify our faith, to walk in assurance, to love one another, and to love one another enough to, 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 to do the hard things, to address what it means to really be a follower of Jesus Christ and pray to live that way and all our frailties and weakness, depending upon the grace and mercy of God extended to us in Christ to change us and for it to be evident and true and meaningful but we're abandoned to our Savior. And it's true for all to see. And certainly we have an awareness of it that gives us assurance of faith that we will walk uprightly with great hope and great thanksgiving. Now, If perseverance were the only sign of true faith, it would be enough. If that's what God intended, it would certainly be enough. But when would we know for sure? When could we we ever have those moments, I guess, of experiential moments or, or emotional moments of assurance? When would we have that if perseverance was the only sign? Well, when we died, right? That's it. Then we would know. But beyond that, not so much. So now perseverance is not the only sign. It's central. It's key, but it's not the only sign. There are other signs of faith. Let's to our confession here. Now, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting the confession, so I, I admit that. But uh, here's the essence of our confession, talking about this reality of, of perseverance not being the only sign of saving faith. Our confession says this. Faith Though it may be weak or strong to a varying degree, even its weakest form is different in nature from temporary or false faith. You see that? So there's a nature of a false faith that is different from saving faith. Now, we can just flip that. There is saving faith that is by nature, by essence, by character, different than false faith. So you could take a person that's sitting in a church pew or two people sitting in a church pew. And one could be a false believer and sit in a church pew in a culture like this where it's kind of commonplace and accepted or at least was in generations past. And yet their life does not match up to anything that looks like saving faith. But they still sit here. And then you could have someone sit beside them that has genuine saving faith. And their life looks different by nature. Their faith looks different. So it's not just perseverance. You said because they're persevering on the surface, aren't they? I'm at church every Sunday. You know, we got them, and I got my, you know, I have my little legalistic commands that I follow. The rest of them, not so much, but the ones that I follow don't drink, don't smoke, uh, uh, don't chew, don't eat the girls that do. Here on Sunday, I don't even cuss on Sunday. Right there. No heart for Jesus Christ, but I've got my rules. They, follow. they can persevere on the surface, but by nature, you understand? By nature, even when a saved person's faith varies to degrees, strong or weak, it still looks different than that. You got me? So it looks different than that. I'm sorry, brother, you're visiting on unity pointing at you. That's kind of rude anyway. So I'm imagining I'm the, bear with me. I'm imagining myself I'm just I'm, I'm I'm on the roll here. Okay, sorry. Someone sitting somewhere, they look different. They are different. Ephesians 6.16. Here's real true faith. Take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is a shield to against, uh, for us against our grand enemy. That shield by nature looks different than a superficial false faith, no matter where we're sitting in church. It looks different. It is different. Even in its weakest point, it's different. And that's subjectively distinguishable. It's okay for you to view it that way. It's okay. It should be distinguishable. It is, by nature, distinguishable. So faith of a heart is always lasting. It always perseveres. It transforms the heart, and the life is changed. life is changed. Now, saving faith perseveres, but it also produces. Saving faith produces. True, lasting saving faith produces spiritual fruit. That is an evidence. That is an an evidence of assurance, uh, for your assurance. True saving faith produces spiritual fruit always. False faith is dead. It does not produce spiritual fruit. True faith is alive, it's active. Now, it's also accompanied by other gifts of grace. So there's other gifts of grace and salvation that God grants to us, and they're always linked to saving faith. They work together to produce fruit. So all grace gifts, including God's gift of saving faith, all of them coalesce in the life of the believer, and they coalesce in a believer working out fruit, spiritual fruit to the glory of God, fruit that lasts, fruit that remains into eternal glory, spiritual fruit. Saving faith produces spiritual fruit. False faith is dead. False faith is lifeless, inactive, and it is disconnected from all other grace gifts. That's why people that will linger superficially in a religious context will line up some legalistic rules for themselves because there is no other gifts of grace attached to the grace gift of faith to work out spiritual fruit. Do you see that? It's dead. They're different. It's dead. There is no assurance. Where there is assurance it's where there's the evidence of fruit, spiritual fruit worked out to the glory of God. So we're not justified by faith that is alone, right? Isn't that what the reformers said? We're not justified by a faith that is alone. We are justified by faith working through the love of God extended to sinners through Jesus Christ alone. That's faith that saves. So it's not a faith for faith's sake. It's a faith that has an object, right? We talked about that. That object is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ enters in, the life is changed, the heart is transformed, the heart is changed, and there is a perseverance and there is the producing of fruit, spiritual fruit. So we're justified by faith working through the love of God extended to us in Christ alone. Galatians 5, 6 speaks to this reality. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love, that love being the love of God, extended to us in Christ. Faith working through love. What does faith do? It magnifies, it shines a spotlight on the grace of God. That's why faith. But saving faith is an extension of God's love to us. Saving faith always magnifies the grace of God. So it's faith in the object. Of our salvation. Jesus Christ. And there the heart is changed. There the heart is transformed. Their faith takes root. Genuine saving faith. And it's faith that always then in the true believer. Points to the grace of God. It's faith that's abandoned to Christ. There's evidence in the fruit. Of that life. So faith. That saves produces good works. James 2.14. What is it? Excuse me, what use is it, my brethren, if anyone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer, the right answer in context is no, that faith cannot, because genuine faith always produces good works. Saving faith changes the heart. When the heart is changed, good works will overflow at the evidence of that changed heart. The works are the evidence of a changed life. So the Spirit of God takes up residence in the believer. We are born from above, born anew of God. The old Adam is put to death. There is a change. There is a definitive change in our lives. We're actively doing good works. And the passion within our heart heart is a passion to serve Christ. False faith does not have that. False faith is dead concerning works, dead concerning passion for Christ. So extending from that passion to serve Christ then overflows what, what uh, Brother Jesse was talking about more just that There's a natural overflow of that a passion to serve Christ rolls out into a passion to serve your family, a passion to serve others, a passion to serve the church, saving graces, working out salvation that brings about change, a change that produces fruit where you have a passion overflowing for your love and, and a Adoration for Christ that causes you to want to serve. It is a selfless service. The fruits are the reality of selflessness that is the result of your changed heart. Your heart has changed. We're naturally selfish. Our flesh, even as believers, can come sometimes override that reality, and we get selfish as believers. That's something we can fall prey to. It's a real thing. But outside of Christ, we are naturally always 100% selfish. We learn how to modify that to get along in culture, but we're selfish. We use it. We twist it. We work it to our way. We're surface, superficially kind because we have devious intentions, selfish intentions. We want to do what we want to do first. We prioritize ourselves. We work everything else around that. We do it to the ones we love the most. But a saved person, now is transformed. And part of that is you just get rid of your selfishness. Is that, is that going to cost you? Yes. Are you going to have to do things you don't want to do in the flesh, you know, or just naturally, or just, you're tired? Yes. And we prioritize, you know, even, we can even prioritize and make it sound good, can't we? But you don't get off the hook if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, God has transformed you and there is a selflessness. And you just don't get off the hook. You can't, you can't, you can't give lips up and say, prioritize the things and make it sound good, make yourself still sound righteous. Well, you know, I just have this extra priority. No, you don't. You're just selfish. This is what you would rather do. So you about have to deal with that because a changed life doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like that. You are just selflessly serving. You just get over yourself and you serve. There's a desire because of what Christ has done in your life. You want to serve others, you want to serve the church. Now, let me modify that for a moment and say this before you get out of hand. You're not always going to please everybody. So be careful we don't start finger pointing, you know, when we don't get what we want. I said, "Well, you're not selfless enough, brother." Not always going to please everybody, but you got to lay yourself before God and understand He's working selfishness out of you day after day, that you will pour yourself out to Him to His glory and service of others. And it may not look glamorous, and it may not. Look, and it may not be uh, um, pretty. It may, it may just be dirty work, simple stuff. But God intends it for your good and his glory. That's how it works. So there's fruit. There's fruit. It's always coming. It's a life that produces fruit. Fruit's the sign. Fruit's the sign of God's grace working in your heart. It's a sign. Just like perseverance. Sacrificial service. So... It's this, this change and this hunger to honor God and serve others it's, it's that rises up within the heart, and we, and we can't put it away. We can't do anything else with it but obey. Obey and honor God, and it becomes joyous and sweet to us. Do we wrestle with it at times? Yes, but overall it becomes joyous and sweet. We give God the glory, and we rejoice in our salvation as he works out selfishness out of us and selflessness into us for his glory and for our good. So here's the application by way of a question. Is your faith living? Is it diligent? Is it powerful? There's the application by way of question. Is it? A false faith has no fundamental change. There may be uh, superficial rituals. There may be superficial language, but there's no fundamental change. Now, even a false faith can repent once in a while, right? You've seen that, right? But why? Someone shames them into it. That's why. You just get shamed into it. False faith can repent, but there's always this, this shaming into it. This compulsion that I feel like I have to do it to save faith. True, safe, true faith repents, man. It just your heart aches, you can't take it, and you just have to go. But you've offended your brother. You know, the spirit of God, the spirit of God convicts you of that. You have to go. You have to go and, and, and repent and ask forgiveness. There's a change. So false faith has no interest in serving Christ. And no interest in seeing souls saved. You're not going to see one of the false face out there carrying the gospel. It just won't do it. won't happen. They'll sit here, but they won't be out there carrying the gospel. There's no, there's no desire in the heart to do so. It's not there. Now, they can prop themselves with all the other things they're supposed to be doing. Oh, well, we're, uh, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm tripping the floor. I'm doing that. But there's no heart. There's nothing that ever ekes up in their heart that desires to go out and see souls saved. It's just not there. That's the difference. A true believer, that's not, that's never the case. You might You might fear that with everything that's in you, but it's always ticking in you. And if, you, and if you're not acting on it, you're putting it away, but it never, it never stops ticking in you because you know it's what you're commanded to do. You know it. If you're a true, genuine follower of God, you can find every other excuse. Well, I'm not gifted for this. I'm not gifted for that. I'm not called for this. We can uh, honor God just as much doing this, 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 and this. But there is command on your life to carry the gospel. And if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, that never goes away. You just keep trying to put it down, but it never stops ticking in there because you're a genuine saved father of Jesus Christ, and that's commanded of you. That's how it works. If you're carrying a false faith, you can care less about that. You want to see somebody that has a false faith that could sit in a church pew, they could care less about carrying the gospel. It's just a marker, it's the way it is. Now, lastly, I want you to see this thought that uh, saving faith does not pick and choose. Saving faith perseveres. Saving faith produces; it produces spiritual fruit. And saving faith does not pick and choose. Now I'll explain that. Okay. True faith is an all is a faith that has an all encompassing regard for all of God's word. Got that? True saving faith has an all encompassing regard for all of God's word. Right. So we can't. True Christian can't can't do the Thomas Jefferson thing. You know, you don't like this, tear it out. It doesn't work for a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. You deal with all of it, all the stuff you don't like. I mean, have you heard those conversations with people? Well, they'll come to a part of Scripture that's that's undeniable, but hard to swallow. And people say things like this: "Well, if God is really that way, then I'm not going to follow that kind of God." Mm. You're looking at a false faith. Because a genuine follower of Jesus Christ sees that in God's word, sees that in scripture, and says, Oh, I don't even know what to do with that. But God, here I am. A true follower of Jesus Christ acts just like Peter. Where else can I go? That's what you do with all scripture. You look at it, and it just is anguish into your heart. You just don't even understand. God, what does this mean for me? How am I supposed to deal with this? And you say, But, you other the words of why? Where else can I go? And you just take it and you saturate yourself in it and you just deal with all of scripture. You just deal with it. That's what happens to one who has genuine saving faith. Now, false faith, on the other hand, is partial. It's partial concerning God's word. And it does not hold all of God's word as command over one's life that's true and binding. That is a marker of false faith. If One that just does not hold all of God's word. It's commanding and binding over his or her life. You're looking at false faith. True faith, whatever scripture says, I'm not picking and choosing. That's a genuine believer. Whatever it says, and that's my language. But uh, whatever says, I'm not picking and choosing. I'm just dealing with it. I'm going to take it up, God. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to bathe this in prayer. I'm going to try to understand. I'm going to study. I'm going to go sit myself before uh, 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 other believers from the, from, the, from the past and just try to take what they, how they've understood this and, and learn from them and study and read and learn from my other brothers and sisters in a contemporary context. And I'm going to bathe this back. I'm just going to work and work and work and beg you to I, I try to understand and obey you concerning what you've said in your word holistically. Why? Because that true believer saying, I'm all in. That's what a true believer says in a nutshell. I'm all in. It's like Peter. Man, he, he, Peter, he, he had those moments. Now, you couldn't get closer to the edge. I mean, he's a great example for us. You couldn't get closer to the edge emotionally, experientially, than Peter. But he said, you're looking at a genuine believer, and in, in all that experience, and all that heartache, here's still a guy deep in the resources of his heart that says, you have the words of life. Where else can I go? And you just deal with it. So accept all of Scripture and say, because you have true saving faith, you say, "Where else can I go?" You don't walk away from any part of Scripture. False faith will walk away from any Scripture that's uncomfortable. <clears throat> Psalm 196. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. Amen. I will not be ashamed. Oh, how we are being shamed into being ashamed of all of his commandments. Today, are we not? Oh, my goodness. How we are being pushed to the brink of being ashamed of all his commandments. Yet, the true believer says, I will not be ashamed of all your commandments. Verse 11 of Psalm 119. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 128 of Psalm 119. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So true faith is a living, excuse me, truth faith is not living a perfect life. That's not what it is. Here's truth faith. True faith is being convinced that all Jesus has said is true and hating your sin and desiring to obey his commandments. That's saving faith. It's not picking and choosing. you picking and choosing, you don't have saving faith. So it's a striving to obey all of scripture And repenting when you do not, that's genuine faith. It's a desire to march on in righteousness, living, knowing that God's word is the final authority of life. That's saving faith. False faith will violate what one knows to be God's will. False faith will do that. False faith will willingly violate what one knows to be God's will. True faith will never violate what one knows to be God's will. You just march on. March on, striving, knowing that God's word is your final authority. That's the difference. That's the difference right there. So genuine saving faith perseveres. It produces fruit, and it does not pick and choose. Why? Why? True faith is saving faith. It witnesses to the spirit of adoption, and it takes on the character of Christ. Now, there's the application for us, to take on the character of Christ, that we continue to reflect the glory of God in salvation, that brings him glory and gives us peace and assurance. Assurance is good and right and healthy. We should pursue it. And know how to pursue it rightly. 1 Corinthians 2.16. For whom has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the character of Christ. Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if, uh, excuse me, if there is any excellent, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Romans 2.12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's the application, and it's simple and pointed. You can know that you belong to Christ. God intends for us to have assurance. God intends for us to know. Now, God doesn't intend for us to emotion to not emotionally waver, to not have doubts. But in those Moments of wavering, in those moments of doubt, there is the beautiful uh, reality of a persevering in faith where God is glorified. Where you sometimes in those moments, that holy hopelessness is all the more evident. And there God works in a most profound way in your life as a true believer. So you don't beat yourselves up over the moments of doubt but you rejoice over the perseverance that always undergirds the moments of doubt. And you give God glory in your salvation and you hold tighter as you move on in your faith with the assurance of who you are in Christ. You can know God desires you to know. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the assurance of faith. We thank you for the gift of faith, all the gifts of grace that accompany the gift of faith. And we thank you for the gift of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope of the gospel that is found in Christ alone, the object of our faith. And we thank you again for the sweetness of assurance that brings you glory uh, that as we walk, as those who are assured of your glorious work, that would extend to sinners such as us. How great of your, uh, how great is your grace that you would save the likes of us? How grand is your majesty? How grand is your work of salvation? How glorious you are that you would save sinners such as us and that we would have assurance and peace and you would be glorified in that reality. We thank you and we say and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.